0: Welcome to In The Spotlight. This is a podcast brought to you by the Guild of HR Professionals in association with Lace Partners. everyone to the podcast for the Guild of HR Professionals, our Spotlight Series. Welcome back for those old listeners and welcome for the new ones too. I'm joined this evening by my co-host Annette, Annette Andrews. Hi there. How are you this evening?
1: Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. All good. How about you? You've been a busy person, I see.
0: Yeah, busy week, I have to say. I'm very excited about this evening though, I have to say, and this chat. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, this is a, this is uh one of our series where we're talking to thought leaders. We're quite excited about that. Chance to listen to people who are published authors or recognized thought leaders in and around the HR space and a chance to ask them some some questions and just have a good chat and a quiz. So um looking forward to that. What about yourself, Annette? How have busy you've been?
1: Uh oh, really busy actually. I have noticed things are picking up. People are kept getting braver and starting maybe to adapt to the new norm and um, hopefully that's a reflection of the economy that things are starting to move I think.
0: I'm sure we're going to talk about some of that as we as we meet our guests as well. I think I was just down into old London town just this week lots more people around but certainly a lot of empty offices and spaces as well so it's going to be a, an interesting transition period I think yeah. for a lot of organizations and see what it does to the economy and to HR as a whole as well. So uh, without further ado let's introduce our guests this evening. Kevin Green, or as I know him, the big KG. Welcome. Good
2: afternoon or good, uh, good evening, I suppose. But
0: yeah, pleased to, to be here. Delighted to talk to you both. Fantastic. And to those listening, let me introduce Kevin and a little bit of his background. He's a TEDx speaker. You can find him on TED if you want to have a look for him. Uh, well worth listening to. Also published author, Competitive People Strategy is the book. We'll talk a little bit more about that, I'm sure, as we go through this evening. And up for an award, potentially, I believe. Nominated for the 2020 Book Awards, I believe. Yeah,
2: it was. Yeah, Shortlisted. I, I, yeah, it was, I was delighted to that. It was my first book, and I was delighted to get some recognition for it, because you never know how these things are going to land. I don't think I'm going to win. It's a very competitive competition, but you know, nice to be nominated. You know, It's a good place to start.
0: Yeah. And it's fair. It's fair to say, written from a place that's not academic a, a, academia. You are a, a practicing or have been a practicing HR director in your own right, uh, and also the CEO of the of the REC, the, the uh, Recruiters yeah. and Employers Federation.
2: Yeah, I did ten years at the REC, so I only gave that up a couple of years ago. Um, that was a great job. Uh, I enjoyed being a chief exec. I like running organisations as well as being an HR director. And prior to that, I was the HR director at Royal Mail for five years during our big turnaround pre-privatisation. So, with Adam Crozier as chief exec, Alan Laker as chairman, we, so, you know, spent. Uh, uh, I spent five years of my life um, helping turn around a great British institution. You know, it was losing a million and a half pounds a day. We um, had to modernise at pace. There was a big debate about whether it was a solvent business. I can remember when I joined, and we had uh, very adversarial industrial relations. And you know, during that five-year period, we went from 750 million loss to 450 million pound profit. But you know, we had to sadly lose 35,000 people. We had nine pieces of industrial action, closed factories, bought machinery. Invested to try to change an organization. When I talk about organizational change, I always say I was the HR director of a business that was 550 years old and culturally <laughs> it still had the same, you know, mentality yes. that the Queen's mail must get through. So yeah, uh, so HR director prior to that ran my own HR consultancy for a period and did lots of HR roles prior to that. So I'm sort of a quasi HR stroke business person, which I think leads us into some interesting territory.
0: I think it will. I think it will. And I and I came across you actually as the advisor in our own organization. And I know you're on a number of other advisory boards, etc. So um, we've we've definitely benefited from that combination ourselves. So uh, hopefully our listeners will get a chance to benefit from some of that this evening as well. Before we get started, Kevin, we're going to, we're going to introduce you to the the concept of, uh, we start all our podcasts with now with all our guests and just asking a little bit about their background, but asking them also to share with our listeners, just maybe their. Favourite nickname that they've been called <laughs> over the years. I say favourite because I'm sure there have been a number in those roles you've had Yeah, over I'm, sure the a,
2: I'm sure there's a few that I couldn't share and stuff, but when I was playing football. I suppose the one that sort of resonated the most was I, I used to be called Chunky Green. And the reason for that was I was, um, during my sort of teenage years into my early 20s, I... I took athletics very seriously and ran 400 and 800 metres and and I suppose my build for an 800 metre runner was most probably more, more akin to a sprinter so for whatever reason everybody that I was training with had long spindly legs and <laughs> I had big chunky thighs and looked more like a weightlifter rather than a so I got called Chunky Green so that's my nickname I suppose there was a few others but I think we should leave those to a dim we'll, we'll distant
0: we, past and people can always write in if they want to hear (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, shall we get underway? Annette, what do you think? Where should we start?
1: Well, I'm always fascinated by, I think, coming out of the COVID crisis, the HR star has risen in such a critical role in businesses with people. One, that means we've got a voice at the top table. Two, it means we're very much part of the current and future business strategy. But Kevin, I'd be really interested to get your perspective on where does HR go from here and what do our HR leaders need to ensure that we instill up skill in our talent going forward?
2: I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right on that. I think there's a huge opportunity. I think we're at a tipping point and I think either the HR community embraces it and grasps it or I think we may, we may well slide backwards because I think that, What I've observed in terms of talking to lots of business people, lots of HR directors over the last six or seven months is that I think you're right, HR's been in the ascendancy. We've had a crisis to deal with. uh, a health crisis, but clearly very uh, people-centric for businesses. And we've been through three phases. We had to adapt incredibly quickly and get people working from home, and HR had to deal with that. Then we had the furloughing and all sorts of different sort of tactical HR issues, which were really, really important. Then I think lots of businesses recognized with a very dispersed workforce, there were opportunities and challenges. The opportunities, you know, you can see that from the data, engagement and trust has, has increased significantly during this period. I think a lot of that was because businesses communicated, they engaged their people more, they were more transparent, they shared information about business performance and just spent more time trying to, to think about their people. The challenges, people feeling lonely, uh, well-being issues. But again, I think organizations, I think, have stepped up and HR directors have stepped up. So I think HR has responded very well in those first two phases. So the reaction to a crisis and then really just making sure that the business can function, continue to provide services to its customers, and looking after its people and, and getting some benefits but recognizing there are some differences. I think the moment is now upon us, though, and I think it's been there for the last... I don't know, perhaps two months and it will be there for the next couple of months. So I think there's a, uh, a six month window where I think organizations are asking themselves a lot of very big questions. You know, uh, why are we here? What's our purpose? How do we add value? What's our operating model? How do we deal with hybrid working? What does talent look like? How important is our culture? And those are great, big strategic (laughs) questions. Mm -hmm. And the HR directors need to be certainly right in the midst of and potentially leading a lot of that debate within organizations. So I think that's the opportunity. So I think we've repositioned ourselves, but it's what you do with that position. It's about the influence that we now use to get organizations to – do what I think we all believe in, which is to be better at managing and leading people. And by doing that, they'll improve their performance and productivity. And I think what's happened in this crisis is that it's become more visible. You know, engagement, uh, involvement, understanding, support, coaching, whatever you want to call it, leads to people performing at a higher level. And I think we've always known it, but I think it's most probably been in leaders' faces much more in the last six months. So I think it's how do you continue that? How do you get the best of it? What do we keep? What do we lose? So I think that you're absolutely right. Great opportunity, but we need to to grasp. And I can perhaps elaborate on what we need to do differently going forward in a moment. I'm sure we'll get into that.
1: Part of me thinks as well, isn't this a great opportunity to – Work with your business and to look at how what the business can be completely differently. So let me give you an example. Do we need our office? That's sort of operationally, but actually, what do our how have our customers' needs changed? How have the technology requirements mm. changed? How has our culture adapted? And actually, isn't this a great opportunity to almost look ahead again, another three to five years, and start thinking and strategizing with that uh, the business? That, yeah. What, are, what yeah.
2: do we do? Absolutely, no doubt. You know, I think that uh, one of my clients. Uh, I'm on the board of this organisation. Is a um, you know, professional services technology business, and and basically they went to working from home. But what they then did is they realised that they could use some technology that they had been resisted implementing for a long period of time, which is sort of voice recognition stuff to be able to deal with some of the basic inquiries, so, rather than going straight through to the accountants. So they put that in place. So they adopted. New technology much quicker. They then realized that they could extend their opening hours because people were quite happy to start earlier at home because the commute had gone. So now they're open from seven in the morning till nine o'clock in the evening. And they found that some of their staff are quite happy to work on Saturdays and Sundays. So now their offering has completely changed to their customer base. You know, some of it's automated. They've got extended the hours. They're providing weekend working and all of that because they've you know, an experiment was foisted on them. And they're going, so what can we do? What can we take out of this positively? How can we change our operating model? So I think there's, Absolutely right. There's lots of opportunities of using technology, remote working to be able to provide greater services. I mean, just think. I mean, just look at some of the data. My old business, Royal Mail. You know, it talked about a 28% decline in letter usage, but a 42% increase in delivery of packages. You know, so a huge shift in a a three-month period where it completely changes and configures. So, and I'm going to go into detail now because it may be a bit boring, but you know, we have got a business. it was configured to deliver letters. We have sorter and sequencing machines. The d- packages don't work. Packages, you need small square offices. We've got great big long factories. You know, we need people to walk the route every day and deliver letters. Parcels you deliver in a car. You know, you change every job. So that's the amount of change that will be going on within that business just because of the the customer experiences. You've been able to provide a different solution using technology and people working differently. So I think it's a huge opportunity, huge opportunity.
1: And it's fascinating, isn't it, that once the consumer, the customer has experienced a different way of receiving packages, receiving their shopping, they go, aha, and they don't want to revert back.
2: So I, think, I think that's right. I think you know. I mean, I mean, you look at all the things that have done well. Anything that's delivered to your door, so the food services, you know, Deliveroo, Uber, all those businesses have done great. You know, but retail has, has certainly struggled. So I think it. I think what I think is, at the moment, we're just seeing the trends that had already started accelerate. I think what's interesting is, I think we'll see some quite innovative solutions. I think you're right, consumer behaviors changed. I think you'll see some businesses pivoting quite a lot to change sectors, to change offering, and potentially, I think you know a lot of this dislocation and disruption will mean that there will be businesses that fail and have to shrink and, and, and make lots of redundancies to survive. So I think what we've got is a period of amplified and, and perhaps speeded up change where the people director is going to be right at the midst of thinking about innovative delivery mechanisms and how we structure our workforces and the capability and talent we're going to need. So I'm with you. I think it's a really exciting time. Mm. It will be challenging and there will be some tough stuff in there, but there will be great opportunities to create new businesses and new opportunities for people. So, yeah, really exciting.
0: And, and I think you you're, both made the point, which is the HR directors right at the, at the heart of have all of this change because it's such a people-centric change. And uh, I, I think even those organizations, though, that, to your point, have done well through this and have grown through this process because they were either already on that journey and it's accelerating or their models were already digital, are finding that they have goals to also address people changes through this, right? Because their, their, their whole concept of where their staff were based has changed. So the ability to say, yeah. access global talent has changed, yeah. right? So you're not necessarily looking for people in, in Leeds or Manchester or wherever you may be looking globally now for talent because you can, you can access it that way. So even those organizations are changing.
2: Yeah, there's, 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 there's. I was talking to an HR director the other day of a uh, technology business, and said that you know there are some real challenges because not only you know are all the rules in every country quite different because this is a global business. COVID outbreaks are in different places, in different levels of lockdown and all of that. So there's all of that operational bit to deal with. But again, there was like they've been surveying and staff, and lots of staff were saying, "I've really like decided I want to work." these hours on these days and be in office on that day and be at home on those days. And the HR director is going, and we want to be supportive and we recognize personalization is really important. But I've also got to optimize the performance of the business. Mm and trying to marry those two things is quite interesting you know so everyone wants to work different hours to meet their you know their requirements and then at the same time I'm going yeah but how do I operate this in terms of delivering services to customers so I think we're going to be that's a classic example of a people-led change mm. that if you go too far one way you end up with operational issues you go too far the other way you lose the talent that you've spent a long time attracting and trying to retain yeah. so you know it's a, it's a classic you're going to have to try and blend and balance your response to this so that we end up with things that work for the people, but also work in terms of delivering, you know, for the business and delivering services to customers.
0: It's interesting because I, I was thinking about your book because we started there. I was come back to that. You know, you, you spent a lot of time writing the book about how HR supports and works with strategy on for businesses and then COVID comes along. Yeah. Uh, And a lot of the stuff you talked about wanting to achieve, probably the HR director's been pushed into that limelight. If you were writing the book again now, would you change anything? Yeah, I I, I think the context
2: has changed, and I think you're right. I think the speed that people are going to have to move at is changing. I think the direction of travel is... Was pretty consistent with what I've talked about already, and and what I like. I mean, I think you know, I just go to st- I go to st- the fundamentals that the book was written, and it took me nine months. And if anyone that's thinking of writing a book, the first three months are fantastic. The research, the interviews, the Bye. creative process, and then one day you sit down and go. They're expecting a chapter, you know, next week, and you have to write, you know, a dissertation, six thousand words or eight thousand words. It was a, it was a, it was a challenge, but I, and I enjoyed it, you know, and it's something I wanted to do because it is marrying together two things I feel quite passionately about. One is that business people don't really understand that people are uh, the core to making, creating value and providing wealth. And I think HR directors aren't very good at aligning people activity to business strategy and performance. Yeah. And so I think, you know, and I've sat in both chairs, so I think I can I can speak with experience. And But what I wanted to do was to take a deep look at that, you know, because there's lots of books and lots of content about business strategy. And there is tons of stuff around HR, but very little about that bit about doing the bit together, which is how do we think about people in the context of how we compete? So, you know, it took me right back to Porter's Five Forces and, you know, Boston Matrix and all of the business models, but then saying, so what does this mean in relation to people and how do you align a people strategy to a business? So, what you know, going back to your question, Aaron, what I think is The book's more relevant. You know, I think it's the sort of thing that people need to be looking at because I've got to reinvent my people strategy quite quickly Mm -hmm. and I need to have a a way of doing that. So how do I do that at pace involving my team? You know, 75% of value comes from intangibles, brand, customer service relationship. That means people drive business performance. What we need to do is educate business leaders and HR people about how they do that work together to come up with something which isn't just a, an HR strategy or a people plan, which is and apple pie, which is a long list of things we're going to do this year. So I think, you know, I, I, I'm, the good news is you're going to love this because I haven't told many people <laughs> this. I'm going to write a second book. Um, I had a
1: feeling that was coming. I could fe- yeah. fence that one.
2: <laughs> and the second book is, yeah. is going to be around what this means for HR. So it's going to be called Competitive HR, and what uh, an exceptional people function needs to look like in the future. So I think the first one's about how do you do that creative work? You know, how do you do that working with the, your business partners to create the right people mm-hmm. strategy? But I think we've also got to move forward. And it went back to Annette's next question by right the beginning, which is, I think we've got to think about the people we attract to HR. I think got to, we've got to think about how we develop people. And I yeah. think the, profession as we did in, in HR on the offensive hour and I think the, the profession is going to end up in two cohort two silos one about operational efficiency mm-hmm. you know self-service contact centers doing this stuff incredibly well and then a, a strategic function which is going to be really doing the work that I think is critically important which is really thinking through how you compete with people
1: and that's how other functions have developed isn't it IT take IT for example. They know the, the the support and the you know operational and IT. So no, I think you're you're right, and it may even end up that operational and HR ends up in operations, and that might be okay actually. Yeah. Well.
2: I, I mean, I think there's something about, you know, one of the things if you survey HR directors, and I've done this two or three occasions once we did it with Lace Partners on, on their piece of work, was, you know, one of the things HR directors, and I'm sure you remember this, is we get dragged back down into the weeds quite regularly. And actually, if we didn't own that, and if it was somewhere else, and someone else was dealing with all the operational supporting line managers, dealing with grievance, offer letters, you know, the, the plot of stuff that we have to do, Actually, would that release the team to focus working with the top team on the stuff we need to be working on, and it's quite difficult to blend those roles where you end up you know getting pulled into the the lowest common denominator so yeah, I think there's something in that definitely
0: i'm I'm interested in something you mentioned at the start of describing the h r function and how it stepped up and what people are revisiting because I think it's an interesting piece, which is this whole concept of purpose, one of the things I hear from a lot of people having gone through the crisis is that it's made them reevaluate their life. It's made them reevaluate where their values are, um, whether that's being more time at home, working remotely, whether that's being taking a serious look at where they work and whether they actually enjoy it and like it. But I, I, I wonder with an organization that's already up and running and how easy it is to change the purpose or introduce a new purpose. I guess it's, you can change the way to work and you can change your value proposition but the, the overall purpose for an organization is a little bit yeah. harder to do.
2: It is. But I, I do think, you know, you you have to ask. And, it, and this isn't just an HR question. This is a question of a leadership team. Why do we exist? Why is this business created? What are we here to do that is unique? Because if you're doing something which is the same as lots of other businesses, you're going to be in a commodity business with very low margins, making not a lot of money and working incredibly hard. You know, most successful businesses, and if you think about any of the technology businesses, which are the easiest ones to reel off, they created new space. And they did that by understanding um, an unmet customer requirement. You know, that's where a business normally starts. You know, people see an opportunity. Actually, if I could provide that to customers – I think they pay this amount of money for it. And I think the businesses lose that as they get bigger quite often. They lose that. Why do we exist? What, you know, what is it that what, who are our customers and, and what value is it that we're providing? You know, there's that great. I, I, whenever I'm talking to HR people, I say, have you read um, Porter's article on what is strategy? And they go, oh. So I said, it's a Harvard Business Review. It'll take you 15 minutes to read. And it tells you that you know when someone's got a clear, clear strategy when they tell you explicitly what they don't do, which customers they don't service, where they don't operate. And it's very clear because it means they've got something which is unique and succinct and is clear. You know, most businesses become messy as they grow. They try and do different things. They go to adjacent space. They meet different customer needs. And actually, the best businesses are the ones that are clear and purest. So, um, I think you have to go back to that. You know, at times. And I think businesses are. And I, I think what it does is it just asks a big strategic fundamental question: Who are we? What are we here to do? How do we compete? Uh, and, and and businesses need to revisit that. You know, every few years, the top team needs to spend some time. And I think this is a moment of reflection. You know, it is a, a moment a bit like for people in their personal life. I think businesses are going, do we really carry on doing this? We've now got some opportunities. We can see we can do things differently. But what are we about? What space do we compete in? And what is our purpose? What are we here to do? And purpose then becomes, when you do the HR bit, why purpose is so important is because it ties individuals' work back to a higher purpose. You know, people want to belong to an organization where they're making a difference. You know, every you know, you, if people work hard, they want to understand how they are part of something bigger than themselves. You know, and I think that's what purpose is about. We are here to provide this type of, you know, service offering to these types of customers, and we're trying to do it in an imaginative way. And, and that, what you do is this, this, and this, and that's how it fits into the bigger picture then you've got a chance of engaging people about, you know, discretionary effort and working harder and productivity and performance. But they've got to know why they're doing it, you know. What are we trying to do? What difference are we making in the world? Excellent.
0: Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I asked.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I had another question, though. I don't know, Vanetta, yeah. you, you had one. No, I'm to
1: hear what you're about to ask now. I
0: was, well, my, my next question was actually related to a podcast you did. The, a few weeks back, actually, uh, that I listened to Kevin, which I found fascinating. And, I, and it's partly because you and I have talked about this topic before, which is around the unemployment levels in the, in, in the country, yeah. right? And we talked at the time we were talking, it was because there weren't enough, there were, there was a low level of uh, unemployment and there yeah. weren't enough of critical skills available. And, and interestingly now, I think as you, as you were saying on your podcast, we, we stand, the office stand at the this beginning of basically an increase, a significant increase in the unemployment level, but also still a shortage of some of the critical digital skills, et cetera, that are needed. And that is going to have ramifications across sectors and organizations and into strategy for people. And as people reset purpose and so on, there is there is that, ro- that role, that knock-on effect into unemployment and into people's uh, lives. And I'm just interested to get your view on is that a – there's, uh, clearly, in the short term, it, it's a difficult situation. But for longer term, is that an opportunity? Does that offer the opportunity to reskill the workforce in the in the country? Do you think? Should that be something we should be leaning into? Yeah,
2: I, I mean, I, I think there is a couple of things. Um, there's a couple of things that are really quite important, I think, in this. And, and some of it's about business and some of it's about government. And I think one of the things we need to see is business and government working much more closely on education and training and retraining because it's very, very disparate. And our education system has not been great at producing the type of workforce we need. And businesses like sitting on their hands and moaning about, education and not doing very much about it themselves. So I think we've gone around that circle many, many times. What I think we're going to see is we are going to see a significant. We are going to go back to 1980s level of unemployment. We are, you know, there's three and a half million people still on furlough. Um, I don't know how many of them will come back, but many hundreds of thousands, if not millions of those jobs have gone. We've already got unemployment at two million. That gets us to three and it will continue to get worse through the autumn into the winter. So I think we end up with unemployment over 10%. And again, the people that will be disadvantaged are, I'm afraid, people that have got limited work experience, so people coming out of university, colleges, mm-hmm. and schools uh, will find it difficult to get into the labour market, and then people in low-skilled jobs which are being made redundant and are potentially in decline. Uh, and I think that disadvantages women, it disadvantages people from ethnic minorities, and young people. So I think we have got to really think about. And I think the government's response, the kickstart thing for young people is, you know, it's a sticking plaster. It's not the answer. So I think businesses need to think about, you know, you can't hire people if you're not making money and the business is in decline. But I do think we need to think about training people. And I do think Mm -hmm. one of the, you know, the principles long term, if you think about the Uh, the dislocation disruption to the jobs market that's coming through technology that was already there and has been speeded up. You know, you don't want high levels of uh, residual unemployment. That means we have to skill people differently. I do think we need to change the education system quite radically and make it more vocational, more creative, more about problem solving, more about working in teams, and that's a big long-term Change Mm -hmm. that government can drive. But I think we've got to find a way. And we started this with the apprenticeship levy of trying to levy businesses for apprenticeships. And I'm not sure apprenticeships are the answer, but I do think this idea about taking some funding from government, uh, from business. And then uh, giving it back to them to retrain is quite a good principle. But again, obviously, with the timing of that's quite sensitive at the mm-hmm. moment, businesses would see it as attack rather than a way of investing. So I think there's some big work for businesses to do. From a skill and talent perspective, I think the skills and talent shortages will still be there. And I think most mm-hmm. businesses of any sense are seeing this as an opportunity to you know if any talent comes on the market which they were found it difficult to hire i think they'll snap it up so i think you know i think what this is doing i'm afraid is amplifying inequality people that have got skills that are in demand will continue to find availability and jobs and people mm. that haven't got the skills and aren't in demand will going to find it incredibly difficult the issue to government is you need to you know, do the retraining, and you need to iron out both of those peaks. So, you know, the immigration stance is really not helpful for business at the moment. So, this is mm-hmm. turning into a bit of a political rant, but it's really the same with any government. <laughs> you know, they just need to understand that a really good functioning labour market is hugely important to the economy. And um, you know, I spent a lot of time mm-hmm. talking to politicians. They don't really understand labour markets. You know, uh, and they don't understand hiring. And you know. Lots of different things. So I think there's a big challenge. Businesses need to really still continue to think about their brand and hiring talent. And government has got to find a way of encouraging them to to take on on people that are are not perhaps required and finding a way of retraining them together because I think that's in everyone's interest. Otherwise, we end up with greater inequality, greater dissatisfaction, more popularism, more mad Mm -hmm. political parties, and we go around the cycle.
0: Excellent. I bet really, you wish you really
2: never great. asked that question.
0: No, well, <laughs> I, 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 knew, I knew where you were going. We've, as I say, we've spoken about it before, and I know you're very passionate from your REC days as well around yeah. the labor market, and we are facing a national challenge. Around, around that. And, and we, you know, it's, as you say, the inequality element to it is, is, is a massive, uh, potential social impact for the, for the country. So it's one we have to lean into. It's one we have to have discussions about and talk about. We're going to have other podcasts in this series where we're talking about, uh, inequality and diversity and how to tackle those within businesses. But as you say, in the labor market, that's a lot harder to do because it's outside of any one business's control.
2: Mm. And I think businesses have got to be, you know, that whole Black Lives Matters thing, which happened at the same time or just after, um, you know, uh, the guy that was killed in the States and then the the reaction to that. You know, I've seen lots of businesses, I think, overreact with rhetoric. Uh, and I think that's really dangerous. You know, I think businesses, I know we want to be socially aware and conscious, but you've got to, You've got to do stuff that's real because I think actually it comes back to bite you. And I think at the moment you've seen lots of businesses that have made statements and then you look at their boards and you look at their organizational structures and, and, you know, how well represented, you know, black and ethnic minorities are and they're just not there. And so I think it's, I think we've got to find a way of breaking this. And I don't think it is about, mentoring i'm not sure it's about um access at the beginning I, I don't know but i think it's about white middle-aged men taking responsibility for changing their organizations i know that's a bit blunt but i really do think it's about privilege and the only way you see systems change is when the privilege are recognize they need to change i think there's something quite significant for organizations of not just paying lip service to this and having to do something about it for real
1: that's a very powerful comment for us to bring the podcast to a close on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. We've got to make sure we don't just talk about it, but we do something about it. Is a very. Suffered. It is, and and again,
2: i, I you know I'm you know board, you know thing about women on boards. I mean, yes. it was well managed, and it achieved its objective of getting thirty percent of boards uh, to have female representation. But I'm not being horrible. But I looked at the boards and the, and the females that have been appointed, they were predominantly. Uh, females that have already, you know, been to Russell Universities, uh, predominantly white, you know, so actually we've sort of perpetuated it. I don't think we've changed systemically organisations and how females progress in those organisations and how organisations need to think about talent and careers. So I'm not saying it was a bad thing. I think it was a positive thing, but I think there's a long way to go a really long way to go in terms of actually thinking about this in a more systemic you know you need to do some design thinking about changing this for good because you know i don't think long term it's it's sustainable and i think people will get more and more dissatisfied with the private sector unless they embrace some of this stuff and and change for good excellent
0: <laughs> could agree more thank you kevin for your time today really appreciate it candid as always energized as always Uh, As you say, we could have continued for four more podcasts (laughs) quite easily.
2: I'll tell you what, you know, uh, as you know, I always like talking and, um, and the book will be, when will that? So I'm going to have to write it. My deadline's April next year, I think. So it will be published in the summer. So why don't, I don't know, some point next year, you invite me back and we'll talk about some of the research and the thinking around what HR needs to do different.
1: Fantastic.
0: Excellent. We will do. We will do. Thanks again for your time. Appreciate it.